All right, folks, we're going to get started. Thank you for being here. Those that are joining us online, sorry for the just abrupt intro there, but we're glad that you are with us too. We're on week three of our survey of the last things. I know this has been um, interesting for some of you. I've had a lot of people comment afterwards and talk to me at different times that this has been interesting. I've heard that word a lot, eye-opening, challenging uh, for some because maybe you've only ever heard one specific way of thinking about the doctrine of the end times presented. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to do two things. One, be uh, fair because I truly believe that uh, we should hold these things loosely because none of them have happened yet. And so because none of them have happened yet, none of us get to speak with any kind of uh, definitive answer on things that the Bible is not as clear as we often want to make them make it sound like it, it is uh, outside of the first order things like Jesus is returning, Jesus will return the living and the dead, there'll be an, a resurrection, eternal judgment, eternal uh, life. Um, and so this, this has been, so I've, I've tried to be fair because I'm, even what I hold to be true uh, has changed over the period of course of time and likely probably will continue to evolve some as I continue to study the scriptures. Um, and so I've, I've tried to present more than one way of looking at it, which is new for some of you just because, you know, most of the time people get up and teach and they just want to say, well, this is the right way. Well, that's not what I'm attempting to do. But on the other hand, I am telling you what I believe and uh, what I believe about some of these things have, have been different maybe than what some of you have believed, which I think actually serves two purposes. Number one, I'm hoping it's challenging to you and to go back and search the scriptures and to decide in your own heart what you believe, and that's important. But number two, it demonstrates to us the importance of theological triage. I began this whole thing three weeks ago with that, with an introduction based on, on theological triage that, that we can do... Um, doctrine well by recognizing that some things are clearer and some things are more important than others. And if nothing else, this just serves as a good illustration of that, of how the church can still be the church. And you may walk away from here. There are going to be a couple of things today I'm going to say today that some of you are not going to like at all. You're just not going to like them at all. And um, I know that. I've, I've kind of laughed at that all afternoon as I was making notes and getting prepared. It's like, oh yeah, there's going to be a few people that just don't like this. And it's okay. Here's, here's what we, here's to, to do good theology together as a congregation says with subjects like this, we can disagree and walk out the door and still be the same church and come back next week and be happy to, and, and challenge one another. So if you want to bring your Bible up to me and say, well, this is the way that I read it. That's fine. Like, yeah, it's okay. Um, happy to have those, those conversations. So if nothing else, if you don't take anything else away from this, at least from a doctrinal standpoint, as far as the last things go, if, if, you, if, if all you get out of this is, wow, it's okay for people in the church to disagree on some things. And we have good categories here at Nansman River for how we disagree on things. And what we should all believe and what, as far as Christianity, and then what we as a congregation should all believe, but then also what we as a, Christian, as a congregation can disagree on, not just from one church to the next, but even from one pew to the next. Um, I think it's just super helpful. 
and this is this above probably every other doctrinal category, uh, eschatology uh, reigns supreme in, in the uh, theological triage world. And so I've, I've tried to say that. I'll probably say that one more week. We have one more week of this next week. I'll say it again. Um, I just, I don't want anybody to go home so mad at the pastor because he didn't agree with you that you, you start Googling other churches, right? This is, none of this is worth that, all right? Uh, and again, I hold what I'm going to say to you is ultimately my position in a loose hand because it hasn't happened yet. And I will gladly be wrong, particularly on the subject that I'm going to talk about today. I will gladly be wrong on this, but I have a fairly firm conviction uh, based off of, I think, based off of scripture. Um, but if I, if I find out that, that I'm wrong, I, I'm going to be okay. Um, and uh, ab- about today's subject. So here's what, here's what we're asking today, which is really where we left off, where we left off last week. Hold on, guys. Sorry. Try it now, Brian. There we go. It's where we left off last week. Uh, we, we looked at Jesus's Olivet Discourse. And we looked at um, the three different cycles of judgment in, in the book of Revelation, really asking the question, what are the signs of the end? And I presented to you kind of the varying positions because some of those are signs that lead up to uh, what some view as a definitive period of time known as the tribulation or the great tribulation. Uh, others see it as ongoing signs in the midst of Christian persecution from the first century uh, un- until now, but really where the rubber meets the road, what I wanted, the question I wanted to get to last week that I didn't get a chance to, that we're really going to spend most of our time today talking about is, is this one. Are we really going to be here for this or not? Is it, is the church going to somehow escape from this period of tribulation, uh, or not? You probably already have a defined position on this. Uh, I do. Uh, my position has changed over the course of time. Maybe yours has as well. But I want to be able to present those things to us today, hopefully transitioning to another question, and that is the relationship between the church and Israel and what's Israel's role. So if, if we talk about what's the church's role in the end times, what, what also would be ethnic Israel or, or even modern the modern state of Israel's role uh, in the end times? I hope to have time to talk about that today. I may have to punt it to next week. So let me pray. And then we will uh, we'll get started. God, thank you uh, that we can be back together. Uh, thank you, Father, that you uh, teach us both things that we hold tightly, like doctrines concerning salvation and uh, even end-time doctrines like the, the blessed return of our Lord uh, and uh, our, our hope in eternal life in him. And we hold to those things tightly. Help us, God, to think well together about your word. Uh, let me be fair and generous and gracious uh, with those with whom I would disagree. And I pray that those in the room who would disagree with me would be fair and generous and gracious towards me. Um, and, God, that you would instruct us. Because while there are different ways of thinking about this, one of them ultimately is right. That you, You've communicated truth to us. So I pray, God, above all else, our goal would be able to find truth in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So the first question that I want to ask tonight um, is, and I, I think I said this last week at the end because I wanted to get to it last week and I didn't. 
uh, is this, I think, maybe the biggest question for some of you. When I was a kid growing up in the 1980s, when talk of tribulation and writing about tribulation was big, right? We're kind of on a downswing of this stuff. Um, but the 70s and 80s were dominated by talk of end times theology and end times doctrine. Uh, you, could, you, you could barely attend any church without somebody preaching on these things. And then kind of the capstone of that was really the, really the, the, the bookends of both of those was um, uh, Lindsay's somewhat fictionalized writings in the 1970s about the end times and then LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' fictionalized writings uh, in the 90s about that, that same subject. And so it really, those, those fictionalized ideas really sparked this great movement. And all I wanted to know as a kid, I could care less about a lot of it. Here's what I wanted to know. Am I going to actually be here for this or not? <laughs> because if I'm hoping no, right, that's what I thought as a kid, right? I hope not because this sounds terrible. And if, I'm, if, if I don't have to be here for it, then why do I really care? <laughs> like what's going to happen if I'm not going to, if my faith is in Jesus? So that's what I want to answer tonight is will the church live through the tribulation? Will we be here or not? The central subject then turns to what the church historically knows as the rapture. Uh, we get this word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from the heavens with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. Now, in um, a few months from now, I'm going to preach that text, and um, I, let me just say what I believe to be uh, as uh, a central truth here, and that is exactly what we have already affirmed to be central truth. Jesus is coming back. And Paul is making that abundantly clear. Here's what Paul's dealing. I think what Paul's dealing with in the false doctrine or, or some creeping false doctrines in Thessalonica is, is as important to understanding what Paul's writing here as anything else, right? And what Paul was dealing with was this select group of people that were starting to whisper in people's ears, you've missed it. Jesus has already come back. They were seeing a spiritual return of Christ, not a physical, bodily, visible return of Christ. And this wasn't the dominant position in uh, Thessalonica, but it was a position. There were people starting to say that to Christians and making people kind of second guess their place. If Jesus is already back, what does that mean for me? Like these are the kind of questions that... Um, the, this church was asking Paul. And so Paul writes to them in, in here. So this is kind of the, the top level thing that Paul says is you haven't missed it. Notice his language here. For the Lord himself, what does himself mean? Bodily, physically, right? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So just like the angel says in Acts 1 to the disciples in the same way that he he ascended, he will also descend. Paul agrees with that here, 1 Thessalonians 4. But then he makes three statements that are intended to answer the question, have we missed it, right? 
and will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. A cry of command, a voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet. Here's what he's saying. He's repeating himself there. I don't think we're supposed to take that as literally maybe as some people do. Here's what I think Paul is saying. If if this would have happened, you would have known it. (laughs) Because the cry of command, a voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet are very, very hard to miss. So I don't think there has to be like a literal trumpet blown for there to be a sound of a trumpet, okay? <laughs> what Paul's saying is you, you've not, because he's addressing this heresy that's starting to creep into the church. You've not missed it. So, so far, we, we would hold this as, I think, first order, right? That, that no, Jesus has not returned yet. Yes, there will be a visible bodily return of Jesus that the entire world is going to see. So, so far, everybody's on the same page, right? And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who, are le- those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. That's where we get the word rapture from, by the way, is the word caught up. The word rapture, if you're looking for it in your Bible, never appears there. It's not in the scriptures. Um, but the word caught up, we transliterate then and get, get the word rapture. So that's what the word rapture means, to be caught up, Right? It will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So here's the, here's the, the picture, right? That the Lord Jesus is going to return bodily. People are going to be, um, the dead in Christ will rise first. So, so the image I think we ought to have is that Jesus is coming back and the souls that have gone on to be with the Lord, as Paul has said elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the, the souls who have gone on to be with the Lord are going to kind of, as Christ bodily returns, are going to meet their, uh, meet their souls again. There's going to be a, a reunion. Kind of what happens with Jesus in the tomb is going to happen with those who are already in the tomb. And then those who are left, those who are alive, who are still on earth, will be caught up, will be raptured together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So the question is, when does this take place? That, that's the million-dollar question. Because it's obvious you're not going to miss it. It's obvious we're gonna, Jesus is going to do this. Um, but, but when does this take place? If you hold, and, and I'm hoping you've already either been here with us the last two weeks, or if you're watching with us online or listening it later, hopefully you're not just picking up with, with session three. Because in session one, I introduced varying ways of looking at end-time prophecies, um, Revelation, the Olivet Discourse, and Matthew, Luke, Mark, uh, Daniel, and First Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. And in, in all of those cases, we were able to kind of put people into some loosely defined camps that share some crossover at times. And so if, if you happen to be one of these people or people historically who have held an amillennial, meaning no literal millennial reign of Christ, uh, or a post-millennial, meaning the return of Christ is going to happen after a, um, after a Christianization of the world, uh, if you hold to one of those two positions, then it's, it's really clear when this is going to happen. For the amillennialist, this could be any day because the millennial reign of Christ isn't literal. It's figurative talking about Christ 
uh, reigning through the church from the moment of his ascension until whenever he comes back. So this will just happen, and then we'll go into the new heaven and the new earth from an amillennial perspective. From a post-millennial perspective, this is going to happen after the Christianization of the world. Now, obviously, the question has to be answered, at what level is the world considered appropriately Christianized to be in the millennium or not? Being that I'm not a post-millennial and that there's actually very few of these people still alive today, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it other than to say I don't have a great answer for that because I'm not one, okay? If you want to be a post-millennial, and this is making a little bit of a comeback right now, if you want to be a post-millennial, that's a question you got to deal with. At what point do we go from being in the church to being actually in the millennium and then after that? How do we know we're in it? And then after that, Jesus, Jesus returns. The two dominant views in evangelical Christianity today uh, would be the, the, well, really three. The amillennial view is still dominant within uh, Catholicism and within more mainline denominations, not mainline denominations that have drifted so far to the left when, uh, towards theological liberalism reject all of this. And I've not really talked a lot about that. But let me just give at least some, some brief lip service to it. There are denominations in the United States that have drifted so far towards theological liberalism that they reject any of this at all, okay? And, I've, and really are even reject, to the point of rejecting a visible bodily return of Jesus, right? So they have drifted so far away that we would say, while they may still call themselves Christians, according to the biblical understanding of what does it mean to be a Christian, they would not qualify any, any longer. So I'm talking about people who would agree on first order doctrines, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, right? That the, these, these are things that we would hold true as being first level, first tier doctrines. Uh, within that, you have uh, certain people who would hold that amillennial view and just say, this is gonna happen at some point, and when it happens, then it's over, right? Jesus returns, judges the living from the dead, judges the living and the dead, and we're in the, we're in the, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, if, that is, if that's your position, that is the position of some people in our church. If, if that is your position, then there's really not a whole lot of debate for you, right? You just look at it like we've been in the millennial reign of Christ ever since Christ ascended, and at some point he's going to do this. And so there's no really reason to ask the question, is this going to happen before or after tribulation? Because amillennialists don't believe in a tribulation. They don't believe in a millennial reign of Christ. And that, again, is a, is a fine position to have. It's not mine, but I do know that it is, it's, the position, it's the dominant position of uh, numerous churches, particularly what we would consider like covenant, theologian, uh, covenant theology churches uh, like our um, conservative Presbyterian brothers, uh, and sisters, they would most often hold an amillennial position. Uh, Lutheran brothers and sisters would often hold an amillennial position. This is fairly common in, in those camps. Within evangelical Christianity, within Baptist life, there are probably going to be two primary positions, both of them holding to a millennial reign of Jesus. So as I explained in week one, there's kind of two ways of viewing the millennial reign of Jesus. One that has Jesus returning right before that, after a period of tribulation, and one having Jesus return really in two parts, the first part being secret at the beginning of a tribulation, the second part being visible at the end of the tribulation. 
And so that's where we spend our time today with the dispensationalist view being that there is a secret return of Jesus combined with a visible return of Jesus uh, later. Now, even within this camp, there's some disagreement. Does that happen at the beginning of the tribulation or the middle of the tribulation? So does that mean, is there a seven-year period or a three-and-a-half-year period? Because dispensationalists are going to hold to a literal tribulation, a literal great tribulation of seven years. So a secret rapture and then a visible return. And then there's the historic premill position. This was the premillennial position that most of the patristics, most of the early church fathers held. Um, it's what um, it's it's the minority position in at least Western Christianity today, as it would relate to uh, premillennialism. It's it's not the dominant view. It does happen to be mine. I've already played that card, so I don't have to like hide what I am. That's that. um, and and this uh, position holds that there is no secret rapture, that the church will live through the tribulation. And that what's being described in 1 Thessalonians 4 is actually at the end of the tribulation. So what I want to do is present both positions. What I should have done was got somebody in our church as a dispensationalist and had them come up here and talk about it because there are people who are and would probably do a better position than me. The one reason I think I can do okay is it was the way I was raised. I was, I was raised to believe and, you know, and taught as a child. So the answer, when I asked the question as a child, well, I live through this. The answer that I was given was, well, no, we'll be raptured. Right. And I held that position for a long time. Many of you hold that position and it is a fine position. I'm not trying to talk you out of it. The goal of these four weeks is just to show you what people tend to believe. Okay. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm going to, I'm going to represent that position now. So what are the arguments that dispensationalists make for a secret rapture? If I happen to get this wrong, one of you that hold to that position, come and correct me uh, at the end. I just want to talk about some, some passages of scripture that somebody would go to and they would say, well, sure, the Bible teaches secret rapture and here's, here's where they teach it. Okay. You go first to the Olivet Discourse. We looked at the Olivet Discourse last week. And I presented the Olivet Discourse and said there are different views of this, that some view this as Jesus. Um, some of it is a run-up um, through kind of the life of the disciples, and then there's this big jump in time, and we get to the end time. Some of it is pretty much all focused on the end time. Some people say it's all focused on the beginning. Uh, dispensationalists would say most of the Olivet Discourse, and there's some disagreement amongst them, but most of the Olivet Discourse is dealing with the end times, uh, that this is talking specifically to ethnic Israel during, during the period of tribulation. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, 40 and 41, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. And so there's this secret, like these guys are just walking down the road. These women are just working, right? They're in the field, they're wherever they are. And it's, it's going to be this blink of an eye, just sudden, invisible, secret rapture. That, and this is what was popularized uh, um, really it was, it was popularized in the 1800s, canonized, if you will, in the Schofield Study Bible. It was printed first in 1910 um, and then popularized within American Christianity, uh, culminating in two different kind of 
quasi-fictional series in the 70s and the, and the 1990s. And it's probably the dominant position of evangelicals today. That when most evangelicals today, most Baptists today, other people that are, that are similar to us in theology, think about end times, think about the rapture. They really think about this sudden secret. All of a sudden, millions of people have disappeared from the planet. Oh no, where did they go? Kind of moment, okay? And Matthew 24, 40 and 41, could be, right? Two men are in a field, two women are grinding, one's taken, one's left, all right? You can go to John 14, where Jesus is talking to his disciples about, he's going, but he's coming back. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Doesn't say mansions. If it were not so, what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Right? So dispensationalists will often see John 14 as Jesus saying, I'm going to prepare a place and that place is not here, okay? This is the, the position. That place is somewhere else, and I'm going to come and get you and take you to, that, to that, other, that other place, at least for a period of time, right? And so they would, dispensationalists would see that place as being a place that Jesus takes the, the church out of the world and takes them there for the time of the great tribulation, whether you believe that's three and a half years or seven years and then, and then returns to establish his millennial reign uh, on earth. There are some that even believe that the church stays there during that period of time. There's all kind of variance to, to this thing. Then you get to Revelation 3. That's another place that dispensationalists will go. And there's seven churches in Revelation that, that John's writing to. The dispensationalist view of those seven churches is that these seven churches, it's, it's really interesting. Dispensationalists will say that Revelation 4 through the millennium is supposed to be taken very literally, but that the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation should be seen as highly symbolic and that we should see, and so it's, it's almost the opposite of what everybody else says, because what everybody else says is the churches should be seen as, as literal churches and the rest should be seen as highly symbolic. So everybody's got some symbolism in Revelation. And the church of Philadelphia which we all want to identify with because it's kind of the good one, right? And, uh, and starting in verse 7, John writes, The word of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you keep the word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down, bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, so that those who dwell, uh, to try those who dwell on the earth. So there are those, again, dispensationalists who would say, who would turn to Revelation 3 and say, Philadelphia kind of represents the true church. It represents the church that is not apostate, that did not walk away from the faith. And they kind of see these seven churches as, as a progression of Christian history and, and a lot of apostasy that took place during the, uh, during the transformation from the early church into the Roman Catholic church and during the time of the Middle Ages and even see the Reformation in there. There's a lot of pictures um, there's, there's a lot of books written about this. I don't, I'm not going to teach about the seven churches today, except for Philadelphia, right? And so it's, hey, look, 
God's promising the church of Philadelphia that he's going to keep them from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. And if we take a symbolic view of these churches, then the faithful church at the end, right, not Laodicea, which is not a faithful church, but the faithful church at the end is Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is the church that's going to be promised to be saved from this. So God's going to take, take the church uh, out. The final argument they uh, dispensationalists make is really an argument from silence. Um, it's an argument based off of the, the whole book of Revelation to say that there is no mention of the church after Revelation 3, that, that Revelation 1, 2, and 3 kind of addresses the church. Um, Revelation 4 and beyond, the word church does not appear, and that is a true statement. The word church does, does not appear. Um, and so John, at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, is called up. He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And so there's kind of an argument then, if not an argument from, you guys have to admit it's an argument from silence because you're saying it's not saying something, right? That, that because the church isn't mentioned, then the church isn't there. So that's the dispensationalist argument. And this is what it looks like. At some point, either at the very beginning of the tribulation or at the midpoint of the tribulation, Jesus will return, not step foot on the earth, but will return to the clouds. It'll be secret. Those who are in Christ will be um, uh, raptured, will go to meet him. We will then go to heaven and stay in heaven for three and a half to seven years, depends on when that rapture takes place, and then visibly bodily return with Christ pre-millennium to reign with Christ during the millennium. Again, Dominant view in Western Christianity, at least Western evangelical Christianity, it was what I was taught as a kid, it was what I held for a long time, and now you can see why I would say at the beginning, if I'm wrong on this, I'm not going to be sad, okay? No, I don't believe this is what the Bible teaches. It's okay if you do, we can all still be friends and go to the same church. It's not what I believe the Bible teaches, but I am not going to be sad about missing the tribulation if we miss it, Okay? I just, I, 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 have, I have issues, number one, with those texts, and I think there are other things the Bible teaches that kind of give us an idea that, that we are going to be here. So let me just go back through these texts for a minute and say, okay, from a, from a premillennial, from a historic premillennial position, from somebody that says the church is going to live through periods of tribulation, maybe even a defined time of great tribulation, uh, and that we're going to be caught up into the clouds with him as he returns for his millennial reign, which is the position that I hold. Um, how would we answer these texts? Well, so I'm just going to walk back through them, right? So Matthew 24, two men in a field, one taken, one left, two women grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. If you actually read that in its full context, the verses before that are actually talking about Noah right? And that some were saved in the boat and some were left. And the ones that were left in Noah, were they in the good position or the bad position? They were in the bad position, right? That, that the, ones who, the ones who were left, um, right, were, were, were destroyed. Or you could make the argument, so there's some ambiguity here, you can make the argument that they were, the ones who were taken were actually taken by the flood, and the ones who were left were the ones in the boat. That when it was all over, who was left, right? So there's, there's a couple of ways of looking at that. Yes, well, 
If you look at it like the ones who were left were the ones in the boat and the ones who were left were the ones who were Christians, then it's actually read upside down that while some would say the ones who were taken are the ones who are benefiting here, it's possible that the ones who were taken are the ones that are actually taken by the judgment of God at the great and terrible day of the Lord. So there is obviously another way of of reading that, that we don't have to read it as the church being taken. You can read it like the judgment is taking those uh, who um, who, who uh, aren't in, in Christ. When we go to John 14, the house that God is building, what's the house that God's building? Is that a place in heaven? We so often present that like it's a place in heaven. But what is God actually preparing as far as eternity goes? You know this, right? We don't spend eternity in heaven. We spend eternity in the new earth new heaven and new earth. We spend eternity with Christ. There's representation at the end of Revelation of, of this perfect place that God has prepared for all of eternity. I think that's what Jesus has in mind in John 14, that the place that Jesus has gone to prepare, it, what is the place of God, if not the temple of God? And at the end of uh, at the new heaven and new earth, there is no temple of God because the whole place is the temple of God, that that's what's being prepared for us. And so to be with Jesus to go and to be with him, to, 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 for him to come and take us to be with himself, that where, where he is, we may be also, is just to say he's, he's coming back for us and is preparing that, that new heaven and, and new earth. I think with the problem with reading Revelation 3 is uh, you, you have to be very subjective with your understanding of what these seven different churches mean. And people have, and, and there's no agreed other than everybody wants to be the church at Philadelphia, okay? There's no agreement on what all the other ones mean. If we can't agree on what all the other ones mean, it's probably not gonna be right to be able to say, well, we don't agree on those, but here's what we do know. Uh, the church at, at uh, Philadelphia is us. I think the better understanding of Revelation 3 is that there was actually a church at Philadelphia. <laughs> and that church at Philadelphia was... Um, because of their faithfulness, this is what the text says, because of their faithfulness, the Lord spared them the great persecution that came upon the early church, that these other churches were also churches. And we, we lose that sometimes in the symbolic meaning. I think that's one of the problems dispensationalists have is that the symbolic meaning of these churches means that some of them are fully apostate, meaning they're not Christian at all, but Jesus still calls them churches. And for them to be churches, they... They're, they're, they're wrong about some things. And John was trying to, through the vision of, you know, Jesus was trying through the vision to John to kind of correct some of that. But I think we ought to just see the church at Philadelphia as the church at Philadelphia. I don't think it needs to have some type of uh, further meaning. And then finally, the fact that the church isn't mentioned from Revelation 4 on is true. It's not mentioned, but that doesn't mean it's not there. And um, I'm gonna actually show you a place that I, that I think the church is. Um, but I think the church is in a lot of places in Revelation. I actually think it's the dominant view of prophetic literature from Revelation 4 through the millennium is, is the church. Is, it's just not called the church because the, the symbolism that is used is, is, is representing the church. So that's how I would answer those. And then we could go to some other scriptures that would kind of help us. For instance, John 17, during the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays this. Uh, for his followers, he says, but, not, but now I am coming to you, Jesus talking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that, uh, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, 
And the word has hated the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then notice this: I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus specifically says to the Father, who Jesus, during his earthly ministry, has said, only the Father knows the timing of these things. And what does he say? He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you give them what? That they, may have, that, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. And how is the joy of Christ fulfilled in them? That they be sanctified. That even in the midst of great tribulation and persecution, the church can still find joy. And that God would protect them from the evil. That, that this, would be the, this would be what he would pray. That, that we would have protection during time of tribulation, uh, but not escape from time of tribulation. Now, that's just one place. The, the next thing you need to do is to, I think, is to think about the term tribulation. The word tribulation in the, the word that is always translated tribulation, although it is not always translated tribulation, but every time this word, every time the word tribulation appears in the Bible, it's because of this word, but it's not the only English word we use for it. It's uh Flipsis, that's the Greek word. Uh, and it's most often translated, not tribulation, but most often translated either affliction or hardship or suffering. It appears about 25 times in the New Testament. 18 of those are, are in Pauline letters. So Paul is the one that wrote the most about tribulation. Um, and for instance, he writes, notice, notice how this word is translated here in Romans chapter 5. Uh, he says, it's twi- used twice, just in verse 3, Romans 5. Uh, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's tribulation. We rejoice in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God loves uh, God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has who has been given to us. Later in Romans, Paul says, "Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?" Shall and this time it is translated tribulation. That word suffering there in Romans five is tribulation. But here it is again, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So there's the question, right, of is it really the plan of God to remove Christians from tribulation? Or is persecution and suffering part and parcel to the deal? That is, is what we are, what the church historically has experienced and what the church will continue to experience until Jesus returns, is that tribulation? Now you would say, some, the, some would answer that and maybe say, well, yes, it is tribulation because obviously we're told we're gonna experience tribulation, but we're talking about some type of great tribulation, right? We're talking about like maybe little T and big T, that there is ongoing historic tribulation that the church will experience. But then there's also this time of great tribulation that maybe is, is capital T, maybe it's a proper noun talking about a specific time and God's going to take us out of, out of that. And so I think that leads us then to the question of, is that, is that right? Is, is God, has the word promised that, that he would take us out of that? Well, we then would need to go to Revelation and to look at 
this may seem odd to you because, you know, there's a dispensationalist would say there's an argument to be made that the church is not in the tribulation because the church is never mentioned in the tribulation. I believe the church is mentioned in the tribulation, just not by the word church. But do you know the word tribulation only shows up in the book of Revelation one time? It's only there once. So let's look at that one time. It's in Revelation chapter 7. All right. In Revelation chapter 7, I'm going to kind of walk through this whole thing for us. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 14 is um, not where we see it. So hold on. Ah, here it is. All right. Verse, yeah, it is verse 14. I was right. I was reading the wrong verse. Verse 14. Um, I'm going to back up to verse 13, though. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? From where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. The only time in Genesis that word shows up. Come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So that there is this period of great tribulation. Whether it's a distinct period of time or not, there is a time the Bible is talking about. Jesus talks about it. Great tribulation, right before the end, kind of this progressive building of persecution of the church, pouring out of the wrath of God on uh, the sons of disobedience, you know, in their, in their present life. And, and there's going to be this great um, martyrdom. That's what's being presented here, right? Who are these? These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white uh, in the blood of the lamb. So that is in the context of two visions that John has. One of 144,000, 12,000 from each. um, I would say 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, but the list is funky. So 12,000 from a modified version of the 12 tribes of Israel and of this great um, unnamed, uncountable multitude who have then come out of it, right? So the question is, are these people the church who have lived through it? I say it is. I believe this is the church who has lived through it, who who have dealt with persecution, and even in the face of Everything that's going on in the world, they did not sully themselves with the world. They did not take the mark. They, they um, persevered and, and are rewarded, are saved by the blood of the lamb and are rewarded with eternal life. But I even think if you back up, and I know this is where I'm going to lose some of you. I even think if you back up, and I think this is important here, to the beginning of chapter 7 of Revelation, that 144,000, I also think is the church. Now, so let me present the dispensationalist position first. The dispensationalist position is that this is a distinct group of Jewish converts during the tribulation who will evangelize the world. So what happens is the church will come out at the beginning of the tribulation, then through some well, well, through the power of the Lord, okay? I don't want to discredit it by the words that I'm using. By the power of the Lord, that there will be a revival amongst ethnic Israel, 144,000 representing, I don't know that anybody takes that number literally, I'm sure somebody does, but representing a great number of ethnic Israelites who then go out and 
re-evangelize the world quickly during the time of tribulation. And some people think this is only three and a, during a three and a half year period, some a full seven year period, but there's this great event, re-evangelism and that those people are then persecuted, those converts, including the 144,000 Jews, are persecuted. And that becomes the great multitude that John sees in the second vision there in, um, from every tribe, language, nation. The, the, the issue is, I, don't think that, I just don't think that's what's happening here. Um, what, what I think's happening here uh, is John is told something and then he turns to see it. And what John sees is different from what he's told, even though it's the same thing. So let me give you an example of it before I walk you through it, because I used this on Sunday during my sermon, okay? A couple of one page over for me in Revelation chapter 5. John's told, John, John's weeping because he can't find someone, there's no one worthy to open the seal, right? And look at verse 5 of Revelation 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. If you were here Sunday morning, I talked about the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so what John is told by the elder is very Jewish, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. Are those things true about Jesus? Yes. Is that what John sees? No. That's what John's told. What does John see in verse 6? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw. He was never told he saw the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? I saw what? A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, with seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So what John is told and what John sees are two different pictures of the same thing. One, very Jewish, lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David. One, very new covenant, the lamb that is slain, right? Are both of those pictures of Jesus? Yes, right? This is definitely, and I preached it Sunday without going into this detail. These are both Jesus, okay? But one has a Jewish flair and one has a New Testament flair. If we think of Revelation 7 in the same light, that John is going to hear something and then see something, maybe this doesn't have to be Israelites re-evangelizing the entire world. Maybe this is just a picture of the church militant throughout history who have evangelized the world, which by the way, is how we use the end of chapter seven all the time. Anytime we use the end of chapter seven, anytime I preach on missions, I use the end of chapter seven. I always talk about every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. Nobody ever presses me on it um, because I believe that's what that's presenting. It's presenting this, the, the results of the church evangelism throughout the ages. But let's just look at, let's go back and look at the 144,000. I promise you this has something to do with the rapture too. After this, I saw four angels standing in the corner of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, and no wind might blow on the earth or sea against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rise of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and say, 
do not harm the earth or the sea or the, sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God uh, on their foreheads. Now notice the language here. And I heard the number of the sealed. John didn't see the sealed. He heard. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. And what is it that he hears? He hears something that's very Jewish, right? 12 times 12,000. There's a number that is very Hebrew. It's that, okay? 12 times 12,000. Some from Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. Now, fortunately, I'm just preaching on these people on Sunday mornings. So you ought to notice something, right? Number one, this isn't in the correct order. Judah should not be first. Judah should be fourth, right? So Judah's out of place. Number two, Dan is completely missing, right? Dan's one of them. He's not in here. Joseph's in here, even though he's not normally in the list. Normally, Joseph is replaced by two of his sons, but he's not. He's one of Joseph's sons is missing, and one of Joseph's sons is there. This list that John gives is entirely unique to the Bible. It is different than every other list of the 12 tribes of Israel found in the Bible. Probably giving us this hint that this is talking about something that's like Israel, but isn't actually Israel. Because if it was actually Israel, the order would have been right and the names would have been right. So maybe John is hearing something that is like Israel, but is not Israel. I think he, I think that's exactly what's happening. And what this is a picture of is the church, right? Who go out, who are sealed by God to go out. And then what's the fruit of their labor? And after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude, no one could number from every, not uh, every nation from all tribes and from people and languages standing before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches of the hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. So if we apply the same thing in Genesis 5, he hears something very Jewish, sees something very New Testament. If we apply that same principle from chapter 5 to chapter 7, then, then this, it demystifies this, I believe, quickly. And the 144,000 become the church militant. That this is the church on mission for God, like Israel but not Israel. And it's what, what John hears, very similar to something Jewish, like in chapter 5. But then John sees, right? After this, I looked. John didn't see those people. He heard it. He looks, and what does he see? Multitude that no one can number from every tri nation, tribe, language, people standing before the throne. Salvation belongs to the God. And who are those people? I told you it was coming back to the rapture. Who are those people? Verse 14, he asked the elder, who is this? These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. So, I know some of you are like, preacher, you're wrong. And again, happy to be wrong on this. I read Revelation 7, and here's what I see. A somewhat Jewish picture of the church that John hears, and the actual picture of the church that John sees, and what do those people do? These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. 
So my understanding of Revelation 7 leads me to say this. The church will be in the tribulation. So go all the way back to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are left, uh, we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So here's the picture that I think 1 Thessalonians 4 is giving. First visible, bodily, that's first level, that's first order. But, but here's, here's my historic premillennial understanding of what's going to happen on that. And again, if you hold a different position, it's fine. My understanding is that at some point, the tribulation will be done. Whether that's a literal, I go back and forth of whether there's actually a literal seven-year tribulation or not. I do hold there's a little millennial reign of Jesus, and this happens right before it. That the church will experience persecution as the church has always experienced persecution. That the world will experience the wrath of God as the world has always experienced the wrath of God. And that this will progressively and continually get worse as we've seen it progressively and continually get worse over the church age. Until the father turns to Jesus and says, that's it. And Jesus will return and before Jesus touches ground, his church will be resurrected those who, are, those who are dead, their bodies will be resurrected and go to meet their souls in the clouds. Those of us who are remaining, if this were to happen today, we would go and meet Jesus in the clouds, but not go to heaven. We would come right back here. And this is the picture that I think, I th one of the reasons I think we miss this is because we don't understand ancient culture so much. When a king would return, not only a king, when a wealthy person would return, there would be a greeting party. The best way I can give it is like this. My parents came and visited us. They were here on Sunday. My parents came and visited us. They got here on Thursday. They left yesterday. When they came, did my family wait in our house? I wasn't home. I was still at work when it happened. Actually, we only had one person home when it happened. My son was home. Our, our oldest was home. But we've trained him right. Because he didn't wait in the house for his grandparents to come in, did he? No. No. His nanny and pops pulled up, and what did he do? He went outside. He went to the car, and he walked them inside, right? I think that's the picture that, that Paul is giving us in 1 Thessalonians 4, is that those who are expecting Jesus, not knowing when he's going to return, but expecting him, when he comes, we're going to go outside figuratively. We're going to go to the clouds and meet him in the air and usher in the millennial reign of Christ alongside of him, all right? So yes, there are some who see secret rapture and then return, um, and I get fine position to hold. There are some who don't see any real kind of tribulation or millennium at all because it's all symbolic. I tend to believe we're gonna have this progression of tribulation um, that may continue to get very, very bad, but that we will be here for it, but our Lord is not going to leave us. He is going to return and get us. And when he does, we're going to meet him in the clouds and be that ushering party, be that welcoming party um, back to earth. So I, I, don't think there's, I don't think there's escape from the time of tribulation. Um, and I'm not going to have time to talk about the second thing that I was going to talk about today. So I'm going to just talk about this for another minute and we're going to be done. Because I was going to try to answer the question about 
the importance of Israel, and I cannot do that in five minutes. So that's how I'm going to start next week, okay? Because I don't want to just halfway do it. Because um, some of you, here's, here's what I know some of you are thinking. Because this, it, it, this was a long journey for me, and so some of you are thinking, wait, if that's really what you believe, like, it, that, that's a whole paradigm shift because I didn't think I was going to be here for this, and that, that's going to start keeping me up at night. Amen. That's my wife who probably disagrees with me on this. Okay. So if, if that's the, if it, like, this is going to keep me up at night. Not if we take the high priestly prayer of Jesus seriously. And what is the high priestly prayer of Jesus? God, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one and that you sanctify them in the truth because your word is truth. Here, here's, I believe Philadelphia is a unique situation that John was writing to at that time. I think in the main, here's what we are promised in Scripture. We are promised that persecution will happen, that trial will come, that, that things are going to progressively get worse, not better, and that we are going to be able to joyfully endure it. Because what is it? I mean, go back and just think what Paul says. Let me see if I can find it here. What does Paul say in Romans 5? Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings and our tribulations, same word, knowing that suffering, tribulation produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, yes, there, there is some fleshly anxiety about the idea that we would in, have to endure further trial, suffering, tribulation, persecution, even the great tribulation that's going to lead to a, an uncounted multitude before the throne. But, but we get to see ourselves as people being refined by that fire, not judged by it. We're not under the wrath of God. We've escaped the wrath of God, but that doesn't mean we're not going to be present when the wrath of God is being poured out on those who are unbelieving. So the, the New Testament paints the, the, the endurance of persecution and suffering, I think, far differently than the 21st century church wants to think about it. The 21st century church does not want, like we will go to great lengths to not experience persecution and trial and suffering. So much so that I think we maybe even have crafted this idea that we're not going to be here for it. And I would say, I think that what the New Testament presents to us in nearly every case the word tribulation is used is that it is used specifically to talk about Christians enduring suffering. And so while I would happily be wrong, <laughs> I believe we're going to endure it. And um, God's going to give us the strength to endure it. Uh, and that the outcome is promised. That's why I wanted to walk through Revelation 7 with you like that. Because if we are that picture of the church militant, I use that, that's an old word, the church militant, and people sometimes don't understand. It's just talking about the, evangel, the evangelistic force of the church, right? If we are that church militant, if we are this force that is spreading the gospel around the world, we have a promised outcome. 
And that promised outcome is far, far outweighs, right? That hope of glory far outweighs temporary trial and suffering. So that would be my encouragement to you. That if, if, you're, if you want to, I'm going to be gracious and generous as, as I end. If you're convinced that the scripture says that there will be a secret rapture, a literal tribulation, and we'll return with Christ, I am, I am fine. We have elders in our church that, that believe that, and, um, and we exist happily together as elders of, of our congregation. And if the elders can do it, then so can everybody in the church. So I'm happy for you to believe that if you're convinced the scripture says it. If you just don't want to experience persecution, and so you go with that one, here's my encouragement. Go back to the scriptures, <laughs> and be convinced by the word of God of what's true and hold that truth in your heart. For me, that's what I did because I developed that position as a child because I did not want to experience the tribulation. Now, there are great godly scholars in this world that still hold that position and, and they're wonderful men and women of the faith. And so are you if that's, that's what you hold. But for me, there was a transition because I just kept going to the scriptures and seeing suffering, trial, persecution on Christians and I see no biblical argument, no good biblical argument for uh, the escape of it. All right, next week I'll answer the question about Israel, maybe a couple others. And I hope we don't, we haven't done this since we've been online, but I may even take some questions next week. We may just do a microphone or something, guys, um, that'll help people on the podcast be able to be able to hear it. But I know I'm not going to be able to cover everything. And so it may be that I've said something and you want to ask a question. So I may just talk about Israel for a little while and then make some attempts at answering some questions next week. So let me pray for you. Father, thank you that, um, that we can know this truth, that today there is suffering and persecution for Christians around the world, maybe even Christians in our own community and in this room, and we have hope. And that hope is in the joy found in Jesus through the sanctification of your word that we can endure temporary trial. Father, if, you, um, if it is your plan to leave the church here through that, uh, through a great tribulation at the end of time or not, our hope and our trust is in you. And uh, we know, Father, that you are with us and will never forsake us and will never leave us. Uh, and whatever trial we will endure, we will endure it, God, because it is uh, your desire to use that refining fire uh, for our good and your glory. And so, God, we can even rejoice, as James writes, in the midst of our tribulation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, those that joined us online. Thanks, guys in the room, uh, for being here and for not accosting me midway through. If you do want to come talk about it, I'm happy to. I'll stay. It's fine. So thanks for being here. God bless you.